As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games. We are here joining you in our splendid sepulchral soundstage. I should have modified that for the alliteratively averse, but anyway, here we are, the wranglers of wrongness, the meanderers of mediocrity. I am your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you? I'm I'm very, very well. I think we should talk about some board games. I, I agree. Is that your inclination at this I, particular juncture? I am. I think we should start a podcast about board games and then talk about them, and it'll be fun. Too late! So, we're going to talk about board games this week. We are going to talk about our Eurus, the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment. We are going to talk about the games we played last week. We are going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And we are going to have a feature topic this week, which is fillers with a specific eye towards holiday-appropriate fillers. With that in mind, let us begin. Like like candy cane mint sauce? Oh, well, or, coming... Or chocolate-filled? Under or... the aegis of that, anything can fill me. Oh, I, sweet. I'll just uh, unhinge my jaw and devour anything that's nearby. Although, mo- many holiday foods are not to my taste. You know, the traditional... I don't like turkey, I don't like ham. Stuffing's okay, but not really much with the mashed potatoes or anything like that. It's just no pleasing some people, Mark. I'm not... See, the thing is, in my not being a picky eater, I have become a picky eater. I don't like special event foods. I like everyday foods. There you but go. At any rate... At any Our Aurus, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment. What did we review last year, Walker? Sentinels of the Multiverse, Mark. We reviewed Sentinels of the Multiverse by... Well, it's published by Greater Than Games. Greater Than Games. That's It was on the tip of my tongue. All right. So Sentinels of the Multiverse with a plethora, Mark. I don't even know what how many plethora is. And, and is this a metric know. or an imperial plethora? Uh, uh, which one's higher? <laughs> Because they has a ton of expansions and they are all fantastic. With with the asterisks being at the very end of Oblivion, which has some good stuff in it. Yes. 
right? Has more characters and more locations, all of which are fantastic because in Sentinels of the Multiverse, more is just better, except they have this, you know, giant boss fight that we've tried multiple times trying to find the fun and could not. It is too well hidden. And for, for reference sake, we have played Sentinels a bunch of times over the course of the past year. Uh, it tends to come in and out of rotation, like there'll be several weeks where we'll play Sentinels a bunch in a row, and then we'll shelve it for a while, and then we'll come back to it later. It comes in and out. It's one of those things that's good to have around in the collection. But we have never tried the Oblivion mode again. There were some noises amongst our core group that maybe when the digital implementation gets Oblivion going, maybe we'll try it then. But I have to notice that all the people who ventured that have not done so because they have too much sense to try to get back into the Oblivion mode ever again. Which is a shame because there's one tiny element of the Oblivion mode that I quite like, namely the submissions that then go you go and get allies and other bennies. But the overall architecture, Sentinels of the Multiverse is not a good game at two hours plus. Certainly not at the four hours that Oblivion can routinely take. 100% agree. I don't even like the villains mode. And here we, we, we disagree. So there's the, the villains mode where you can play against N different supervillains, where N is the number of players. We have a bunch of little uh, mid-bosses instead of just the one big final boss. Because the trick to Sentinels of the Multiverse is you have to keep it moving. You want to keep the overhead low. You want to think, think, keep things comprehensible. And when you start having too many global effects, when you have start, start to have too many of those other things, it becomes unfun and tedious. Yeah, there's a couple on our guild. There's a couple threads talking about Sentinels of the Multiverse, you know, having a long... I think they were comparing it to Street Masters and the fact that, you know, it has this long... Uh, villain turn or whatever and you just have to learn to what we do is like you know make sure everyone has a job like this person is, is in charge of the location this person's in charge of the boss and if there's a bunch of minions you know this other person's in charge of those and just make sure you spread everything out that way everyone knows exactly what they're doing and it game flows much better it's true especially from your perspective because we know we can't give you any of the jobs that require reading comprehension or acuity of any type 100 percent. i yeah. get to sit there and play my character and if anyone bugs me i flick cards at them and, and bite yeah. I, I'm a biter. Yeah, sounds reasonable. And that is the game we, we uh, reviewed last year, Mark. Sentinels of the Multiverse. What did you play this week, Mark? I get to play Amun Ray, the card game. I talked last week in the context of card game adaptations of board games that sometimes it's a function of distilling what was great and getting rid of the cruft. This is in the context of Kalos Magna Carta that I tried for the first time last week. Amun Ray, the card game, is something that I've been playing semi-regularly over the past few months because Amun Ray is a runner Kinsey auction game and it is one of the very rare runner Kinsey auction games that I do not enjoy. Amun Ray, the board game, had a number of weird issues with it. One of them being it just didn't scale well. Less than five players was a mistake because the board doesn't scale. But Amun Ray, the card game, does two things that I think is excellent. Number one, it scales with the player count very well. And number two, it gets rid of a lot of the cruft while simultaneously introducing some new auction elements from other games. It's got the uh, interesting element from Raw where you can't make change, and that influences the bidding quite a bit. Uh, it loses a little bit of the, shall we say, thematic appeal of Amunray the Board Game, because one of the cute bits of Amunray the Board Game is you would build these pyramids, and they would outlast you. You would then rebid for those territories that had pyramids in them, and even though you weren't the one that bid them, you could uh, build them, you could buy them later in a subsequent auction round. And this was interesting, but I don't think it really influenced the gameplay a whole heck of a lot, other than merely changing the value of the, the provinces turn by turn. In Amunray the Card Game, you still have that virtue, because turn by turn, you're moving on to different decks, and so you're bidding on different kinds of properties anyhow. 
So thematically, it's a little less satisfying in that sense, but I really do like the gameplay innovations. Emily, the card game is not well appreciated by a lot of the Renekutia fanboys such as myself, and I think that's a shame. I think it's definitely one of his better re-implementations over the past few years. But then again, I don't like the base uh, the base Amunray game, so I guess if you like Amunray, you might not like the re-implementation, but I think it's a triumph of keeping what was good while introducing some new bits. Uh, the Good Doctor is very, very good at these kinds of iterative improvements. And I think that for a 45 to 60 minute auction game, it is really, really, really solid. Not top tier necessarily, but I always have a good time when I pull it out. It's got a little bit of the problem whereby if you're doing well in the first round, you're probably going to take the game in a three-round game. But given how long it lasts, that's not a crippling difficulty. It's less compelling than, say, Modern Art, which is of a similar weight and similar length, also by Reiner Knizia, and it doesn't have that market manipulation element, but Amun Ray is really interesting in that it has a multiple-stage bidding system. First, you're bidding on this thing, and then you're bidding on something else, and you have to build some infrastructure. I enjoy it. I think it is a really workmanlike design from a very talented designer, and watching the ideas iterate is always a pleasure, and... As I say, I think that it is a great re-implementation of a game that I didn't much like and something that I very much enjoy, and that is Amun Ray, the card game. The games I played this week, Mark, are going to be interesting because I was looking over the designer names and, and how badly I'm going to destroy them. It's going to be very fun. I am ready. I am girding my ready? loins as we speak. All right. So this is a game that Mark explained to me earlier and the one that he brought, and he seemed very uh, eager to try it. So I, I want to know how he thought it went. This is a game called The King's Dilemma. And it was designed by Hjalmar Hawk and Lorenzo Silva. I would guess it's Hjalmar. But I'm not 100% sure. All right. And they're from Horrible Guild Games. That's a terrible thing to say. I know. Anyway, when you explained The King's Dilemma, I thought it was going to be fabulous. And then it turned out it was a legacy game, which made it even more. Because when I didn't realize it was going to be a legacy game. So what it is, is that it, it just proposes all these different circumstances that a government would make decisions on like you know you know these buildings burned down shall we go rebuild them for our people uh you know this stranger has come to town and he has slaves what are we going to do about that and it's and you know raises these you know moral dilemmas and 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 leads to interesting discussions around the table and i feel this is definitely a game that needs the right group of people it's definitely a game that i probably wouldn't bring to a gaming night it would be a regular group of people well, I guess it, I guess if there's a, a a particular group of people at that gaming night, and you and you've told them ahead of time, and you've like arranged for them to play because it's a legacy game, and you probably want to play with the same people multiple times. That being said, there's tons of different houses that all have different abilities or you know different you know unique scoring opportunities. And overall, I thought it was a great game. There's cool stories coming out, cool decisions, cool mechanisms of how to you know lower and higher all these different, you know, charts on charts. What'd you think? So on paper, The King's Dilemma has a lot of the features that would make it a game that I would want to avoid, particularly where my tastes are settling in the past few years. It's largely about manipulating a series of tracks. It's a legacy-style game, and it appears to be, although there's going to be a lot of caveats here because we've only played it the once and it's a legacy-style game, it appears to be a legacy game where it's very inflexible for bringing in new people and cycling out old people. Not in the sense of the mechanics not being able to handle it, because you say there are 12 different houses, each with their own backgrounds and victory conditions and overall goals and flavor attached to them, but in the sense that if you are if you care about the overall victor, 
which we're not 100% sure how the overall victory is going to be determined because the rules are a little ambiguous on that. We assume that there will be developments in the legacy campaign to make it more clear. But there's a sense of accumulating points over the course of every session. And if you start missing sessions, I don't see how you could possibly catch up, given how the scoring is coarse. All of that having been said, the reason why I wanted to try The King's Dilemma is because it is precisely the kind of sort of political dilemma things that I find interesting to discuss. I tend to find a lot of the the sort of stated moral philosophy dilemmas that people present, like the trolley problem and other things like that. I'm sufficiently down in the uh, the theoretical weeds that I don't find those dilemmas particularly interesting to discuss anymore. Not because I think I've got the answer, but because I, I've just, you know, I've settled on on my particular methodological approach and I'm not likely to budge. But when it comes to politics, things are always more messy than that. And what I particularly found appealing about the King's Dilemma is what I was hoping what it was due, and I think it delivered in spades, was there are these layers of motivations for how you're going to approach every given dilemma. Because you're going to read a dilemma, which is going to be a, 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 a setup with uh, some fictional elements, and you're going to get a, a glimpse, a sort of preview about what the various consequences might be for voting a proposal up or voting a proposal down. And so you can approach it from the context of, I care about my victory conditions for this game. You can approach it from the context of, I care about my victory conditions overall for some sort of medium or long-term arc. Or you can approach it from the perspective of, I would like to engage in some light role-playing based on the theme of my house or any other elements uh, that you want. Or you can approach it from a purely self-interest perspective and say, I don't care, I'm going to pass and accumulate resources, or bribe me and I'll vote for you. Yeah, or even on past agendas, right? He's like, I can't believe that this went this way. You really, you see what happened when we did that? You know, now we got to fix what we did by doing this. I th it was fantastic. Yes, and the payoff was, I, I have to say, perfect. It was exactly what I hoped it was going to be. The moment when I knew that things were really clicking and that we were on the same wavelength as this game, no pun intended, actually, no, there is a pun intended, was because we started arguing about the merits of a particular policy and there was considerable disagreement in the group, and there was a little bit of a hard fight for the voting. The voting is cute. It's not particularly mechanically involved, but I think it gets the job done. There's some interesting elements about turn order. And when the proposal was voted down, the first line of the flavor text of the paragraph explaining the consequences of our actions exactly mirrored the political justifications that we were levying in the context of the pre-vote argumentation. So it was perfect. So we were it, it wasn't like one of those things where sometimes in video games or board games, even in some of the legacy games where you do a certain policy and you think you understand what's going on, and the way they explain the consequences makes it clear that there was all this other stuff that wasn't rendered clear at the outset. Set. And I always feel cheated when that happens. This happened to me in Charterstone. This happened to me even in Gloomhaven, games that I actually like. But The King's Dilemma was perfect for that. I loved the voting. I like voting games. I like negotiation games. I loved what it did with the voting. I loved what it leveraged with the voting. I thought it was wonderful. I can't wait to try it again. I have some concerns, however, and those concerns are precisely premised on the sort of long-term victory condition horizons. On a single session, the victory conditions made perfect sense to me, and I thought they were good, and they were reasonable, achievable aims, and sometimes you didn't care, so then you try to leverage it into bribes or long-term alliances, what have you. I really don't know how the campaign is going to shake out long term in terms of a competitive experience, but I'm not sure I care. So I want to see what happens. I want to see how flexible it is to play a game without all the original five people that we played the game with. I want to see how you can bring in new people. 
I want to see how flexible it is with that. I have my doubts, and I want to see how the long-term victory conditions shake out. I have my serious concerns there. But again, it was so perfect in terms of here's a complicated political situation. Decide what you want to do with it. And then there was this fascinating other element of the game making you eat the consequences. Every time there's a decision, there's a leader attached. And if there are long-term consequences of that decision, they have their name written down. That is yours to own forever. Well, not forever, but for the next few games. It was great. The discussions were marvelous. We got a whole bunch of people around the table, and two or three of them right off the bat said, ooh, this is a game about political intrigue. I'm not sure I'm in. And ten minutes later, we were all somewhat in character arguing about political consequences. It was so engaging and enjoyable. It was a delight. I can't wait to see how it develops. And the momentum on the tracks, that's the one thing I thought was fairly interesting as well, because like you said, it gives you a glimpse into what the the penalties or the benefits are going to be. And then you sort of have to glance down at the track and say, oh, well, we're doing really good at food or or knowledge from last turn. And it has a momentum, right? It says, okay, well, you did well, and then you did well again. And if you do well again, you're going to get even, you know what I mean? And it's, it sort of adds on to your either penalty or benefit, depending on which way it's going. And I thought that was very interesting as well. There's also this notion, again, in terms of how good the victory conditions are from session on session, of trying to end the game in the way that you want it to end. You can have, the king can either abdicate, which is generally bad, or the king can die of old age, which is generally good. So if you're, if the game is going really badly for you, you can try to force the end game earlier. Anyway, I could talk a lot about all the things that I really liked about the king's dilemma. I want to see how it develops. I want to see if it's able to de- keep developing and delivering on the pr- the early promise without any sort of long term uh, victory conditions really undermining it. This in many ways, just as a a final note, when we played Charterstone, if you'll recall, at the end of most of the games of Charterstone, there was a little bit of this element of here are two possible ways that the game could develop in terms of the overall political situation. There are two salient differences, though, in how the King's Dilemma does it. Number one, rather than doing one at the end of a tedious worker placement game, it's the entire game. And number two... Rather than just letting one person decide what what gets to happen, as in Charterstone, the entire point of the game is that everyone decides all the time. And yeah, it's not, and it's not completely hidden in the background story yes. where you really have no idea where it's going to go. We wanted Charterstone to be more story forward because the little bits of political development we thought were actually kind of cute. The King's Dilemma is all about these political developments all the time. And I, I really, I'm really looking forward to more. What else can I say? I don't want to gush too much. It's been a good week for new games, and The King's Dilemma definitely delivered for me. And that's by Horrible Guild. So mean. Such a bully. We played Pandemic Rapid Response again. This is the King Clanko real-time cooperative dice game, although to say that it's the King Clanko cooperative real-time dice game is uh, sometimes saying the same thing three times. And this was uh, requested by a big fan of Pandemic, and I tried to explain to them, look, this isn't really much of a Pandemic game. It's 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 more of a King Clanko game, which didn't mean a whole lot to him, except he had tried Fuse, so we were able to, to, put, to put it in there. I prefer Pandemic Rapid Response to Fuse. I think it's got a little bit more theme going on. I think that on the normal difficulty, it gets things more or less right. We won our first game, which is not necessarily our preferred way to approach co-op games. But at the very least, we won on the last time marker. So that was something. Uh, there's a little bit of ambiguity in pandemic rapid response about who's allowed to touch what when. And so sometimes it's very natural to sort of cheat and start helping people out on their turns. But I do like the overall turn structure of pandemic rapid response. As a reminder, you get to decide how long your turn is. And in a real-time game, that can be an interesting element of pressure, whereby you only get a certain number of rerolls, but sometimes it's just in your interest to say, eh, I'm done very early because you're wasting everyone's time. 
and that element of trade-off of knowing when to call it is is kind of cool and easy to do in principle, but hard to do when the sand timer is ticking down and you have this sort of assumption that during your turn you should use all your dice to the maximum effect. Yeah, I like how it keeps the stress level high the whole time. There's no really downtime and you know, and it flows very well. So I think they do a great job. More on Ken Clanko in the news, actually. I thought it was an, very interesting that we chose to to play uh, Rapid Response. But anyway, more on that later. I got to play Yokohama again. Loving Yokohama. It's by Hidashi Has, Hasashi. Goodness gracious. Oh, yeah. Hisashi Hayashi. Hasashi Hayashi. Put out by Tasty Mitchell Games. This is another game that has a, a unique twist on worker placement. You're putting out all these little helpers, and your main boss has to, like, can only move where they are, and then when he gets to the spot of the action you want to do, the action is amplified by how many of the workers are there, and then once you've done the action, you take them all off, and if you've done a powerful enough action, you can put out some buildings, and you're, it's, it's one of these games where you're, you're grabbing orders, and you're trying to get resources to fulfill those orders, and what was interesting about this particular game is the fact that the, uh, I think your average score is around 125 or so, and we are all we are all within four points. When you're playing oh, a wow. four-player game and you're all within four points, it makes it very fun and close. And because it's not as though you're all doing the same thing. Some people can be, you know, doing the church thing, you know, sending people with religion. Some people are are cashing in baggage, or you know, sending people to the the cargo bay or you know getting points that way so is that your overall statement on theology some people are doing the church thing yes okay some people are doing the church thing anyway there are it's not as though it's one of these games where everything just falls into close points because everyone's doing the same thing anyway there's there are lots of ways to get ahead or behind in yokohama and it, it's a great game when everyone comes in within four points and if you have a chance to try it give it a whirl it's a great lots of decision space there Moving around a city, trying to block people off, trying to anticipate what they're going to do. And I love it. Yokohama. Tasty Mitchell games. How was the player interaction? The one time that I played, I enjoyed it, but I didn't really get the sense that I was deliberately blocking or deliberately interfering with much of anyone. No, it definitely was happening in this game. Okay. Mostly to me because they're they're all very mean and, and nasty people. I'm very, very sorry. I would encourage you to tell someone who cares. That definitely does not include me or anyone who listens to this podcast. At least I hope not. Also under the aegis of new stuff that enjoyed a great deal of this, this was a lot less surprising. I finally got my Street Masters Aftershock Kickstarter pledge in. And so now it is all in one giant box and I have a gazillion T characters and a bazillion T one different settings and villains and so forth. I have played five times over the course of the past week, some of them solo, some with other people. Because Street Masters in solo is very, very, very quick, very quick to set up, very quick to do, and I'm very keen to try all the new stuff. I am always impressed by Adam and Brady Sadler from Blacklist Games at how they are able to make unique feeling decks. In the context of talking about games like Sentinels of the Multiverse, uh, Street Masters is very, very, very much like Sentinels of the Multiverse. And I'm always impressed by the the, abil- the 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 profusion of different kinds of feeling decks you get. I would figure they'd run out of effects after a while, but then again, that's why I'm not a game designer. I'm just an appreciator of these things. So Street Masters has been uh, expanded now to the point where I think it's it you know there's so much content. It's it's an amazing quantity of stuff 
uh, all at uh, relatively affordable Kickstarters, so I'm very pleased on that end, and I'm even willing to forgive them for the incredibly shambolic fulfillment, which was really just a comedy of errors, but hopefully eventually everyone will get their stuff. But I've got my stuff, so I don't care about anyone else anymore. And... (laughs) I, I have to say that my favorite of the new characters is probably the mutated Gecko Judoka. Oh, there you go. <laughs> when we reviewed Street Masters, we were both very positive about the design. I remain incredibly enthusiastic about Street Masters, and I've been having a great time with the new Aftershock content. And although I am very, very dubious about a lot of the other content from Blacklist Games, I think that they're trying to take the system in many cases, in the case of Brook City and Ultra Quest, in places where the system doesn't want to go. But in the designer's notes for Street Masters, they talk about how it's sort of the apotheosis of all they ever wanted to do in a game, and it's their favorite design they've ever put out. And to a certain extent, I think that shows. And I think it's right at the sweet spot of getting interesting effects without being too cumbersome to run, which is always good for a solo game with lots of effects. And at the same time, you're getting lots of interesting stuff happening. So Street Masters is definitely my favorite of their output thus far, although I will still probably take a look at whatever they put out in the future. And I am loving all my new Street Masters stuff. All right. I got to, I tried another uh, solo mode, did uh, Gugong. Turned out great. It was another automata automata deck. And it was very, uh, very smooth, very easy to set up, very easy to learn. Just like you just have to turn up an atomic card and the top deck of their little hand of uh, gifts and it, it they do what they do. It doesn't matter if it's higher or not. He still gets the action. So it flowed well, but it I don't think it I, I have to increase the difficulty immediately because, you know, I'm just a master at Kugong now. <laughs> no, that just being said, you know, there's. I just have this image of you saying to a deck of cards, "Get good, get good, son." No, that, you know, we have this. We have the one little strategy where you, where if someone is letting guys linger on the wall, people are cycling that and getting the, you know, getting using it to go up the the moving his little ambassador up, and it's a it's a three point victory. Every time you score the wall. Yes. And that is huge. Rapid and, wall turnaround is very, very and, powerful. And yes. three points at Gugong, I think, is fairly huge. So and if you're playing against a, a deck that just happens to do actions when they turn up, you can sort of, and he's got three guys sitting in the wall, and you can sort of cycle that, and you have another strategy that's working well, and they're not doing anything to stop that. It, it, it was, put it this way, it was the highest score I ever got in Gugong. Ah. So that being said, it still worked well, and it was still interesting to play. How often did the Atoma go after Jade? Uh, quite often. I see. Which that might have something to do with it. <laughs> well, I'm glad it worked out. It's interesting because, you know, at the very beginning, you turn up one of the cards and it says that's his, you know, his strategy for the game. So you put like a little marker on a, a particular action mm-hmm. and then some of the cards just say, you know, do the strategy. So, right. they, so they sort of focus on that. And it, that way it worked out. Fairly interesting. And what was the specific strategy that you this pulled one from this was one? the the boat. He was hard on the, I see. hard on the boats, and so he you know got a bunch of extra cards. And I thought at first I might have been in trouble because he had like two extra cards almost immediately. But other than that, still worked fairly good. And then they have like a night phase where they go through their every card that they turned up. They go through again, and there's something at the bottom of all those cards, so they sort of do a whole bunch of stuff to try to catch up. But he didn't come close. You keep saying he. Does the Atoma have a name? I'm sorry. No, he does not. Well, no, you can name the Atoma. That's it's fine. true. Actually, no, that's a total lie. He totally does have a name, and it is is called. Uh, I have to go look it up. It's like it's a a, a Japanese name. It's, I see. It's Jinka, or you know, well, presumably Chinese in the case of Google. Sorry, yes, sorry, Chinese name. 
So I got to play a game called Barrage. This is a game that has also had a very, very, very troubled Kickstarter fulfillment. I'm not really going to get into that too much. There was a whole issue of fulfillment issues coupled with unfulfilled component promises. Some complaints very legitimate, some complaints perhaps less so, but there was, there's was there been a lot of spilkes surrounding the fulfillment of Barrage. Barrage is a mostly worker placement-ish kind of game by Tommaso Battista and Simone Luciani. So this is Simone Luciani not working with Daniel Tashini. They produced tons of games together, but this is Luciani with Tommaso Battista instead. Battista not having any other design credits to his name other than Barrage. And this was put up by Cranio this year, and I've been meaning to try it because a lot of people have been saying that this was a solid design, despite the fact that the fulfillment was such a tragedy. And I have to say, first of all, that the conditions under which I tried Barrage were suboptimal, to say the least. For one, I was extremely tired. You know the kind of tired where you can't really focus your eyes properly on things? That's tired. That's pretty tired. I was that kind of tired. Oh. I... I I haven't been sleeping well for a few weeks, uh, largely since the accident. It's It's been a whole thing. It's getting better now, but at the time, I, w- I was thoroughly tired, but I made the uh, arrangement in advance. And I was also, and this is no slight against the people I was playing with, I was walking into an environment with players who are very competitive in nature. And it's not that I object to people being, I guess the term is tryhards. That's fine. People can try hard to win and do whatever they want within the bounds of the game. We've talked about that at length. I just don't like it when there's a certain kind of dialogue around, you know, tracking who won what when and remembering scores and vowing revenge and all these other kinds of things. I trash talk. I trash talk all the time. But I don't care who wins, mostly. I play to win, but I don't care who wins at the end of it. And so there was there were a couple of comments that made me think that I might be walking into a, a more competitive environment that I like. And I was concerned not only for that, but I was also concerned that possibly my, I might play suboptimally and therefore throw the expectations of the table. Uh, because I was playing with, with, with three people. Uh, let's, I guess the first one I'll call Alpha the Gamer. And there was uh, someone I'll call Dr. Handsome. And then I will, uh, the last one I'll call El Guapo. Uh, and I was, I was primarily concerned about the first two because Dr. Handsome and Alpha the Gamer are, are, are both very big on playing games to their, to their utmost. Anyway, all of that having been said, Barrage was great. Barrage was really, really entertaining because it does a lot of the things that I want out of medium to medium heavy Euro games. Namely, there's a lot of different ways to score points. But very much like the Voyages of Marco Polo, very much like, well, even more so than Gugong, it, it's kind of focused towards uh, a small sub uh, subset of things to profit. It's not point salad. There's not 17 tracks that you go up and you score for all the tracks that you've, that you've gone up. In Barrage, it's mostly about generating power, specifically generating hydroelectric power, which, as someone from Quebec, of course, is of obvious enthusiasm for me. And the, the, the interesting thing about Barrage is there's only a small amount of water that enters the system every turn. And to generate power, you need to, quote-unquote, use up the water. So there's this interesting geographical element of trying to arrange things so that you can use the water multiple times, because whenever you use water to generate power, it then filters down into a lower set of dams until eventually it slides off the end of the the board. I didn't do that so much because I made a number of early game critical mistakes, which, thanks to the cutthroat nature of the table, were not pointed out to me as I was making them, but whatever, that's fine. And... There's, you know, of course, there's all the other trappings of a medium weight Euro game. There are contracts to fulfill of a, of a bunch of different decks. There are special technologies you can buy. There are other point bonuses you can get for doing this, that, and the other. But again, it's mostly focused on generating power. 
And so you're building this power infrastructure. Sometimes, although much less than I would have liked, you're leeching off of other people's power architecture. But mostly it's about snapping up the right buildings and trying to see where the economy is going so you can cut people off. The highly interactive nature of Barrage, I appreciate it. It's very, very, very cutthroat, both in terms of the action spaces, which we enjoy in a worker placement game, and in terms of board positioning. If you don't get the good spaces in order to generate power, if you build in the wrong space, if you're not able to capitalize on these things, you are going to get your lunch eaten out from under you. Despite the fact that it's a reasonably long Euro game and reasonably crunchy, it nonetheless is focused in a way that I was willing to forgive its about two and a half hour length. And so I thoroughly enjoyed Barrage. I'm looking forward to trying it again. Its reputation as a very, very worthwhile design, I think, is well earned. And I am definitely interested in, in trying to see what the retail release is going to look like when and if that that manifests itself. And because I would very much like to have a copy of my own. And I'd be very curious to see what you thought about Barrage. I've been doing a lot of reading on Barrage. I'm very much looking forward to playing it. It's like... I don't want to say much because, like you said, you played. Is it, is it what I want it to be? It's like the water's trickling down, and everyone is using the same water, and you're trying to get in front of the other person, and you know, try. Oh yeah, I can't absolutely, wait. cannot wait. To absolutely, try this game. it's again, it's one of those things where sometimes you can just make early mistakes that are going to haunt you forever. For example, in a given basin. The water's going to trickle down, and it's going to stop at the first dam there. So, if someone builds a dam directly above you. Well, then. That's it. <laughs> you know, that lower dam isn't going to get much water, and you cannot generate power from other people's dams. You can use other people's converters, but that's about it. And it's a three-stage process. You need to have a dam with water, you need to have a converter, which can be somebody else's, and then you need a power plant, which needs to be yours. And so building all these things is very important, and sort of visualizing where things are going to go is is of crucial importance. But again, I enjoyed it. It comes to a reasonable good, reasonably good focus. And there's lots of stuff to do but at the same time, not to the sense of distracting you. Like, not like, well, I can't generate power, so I guess I better go deal with, I don't know, the peripheral stock market mechanism or some other weird thing grafted onto the side. I'm sure they'll save that for an expansion. But as I say, very promising first play of Barrage. Looking forward to more. And then finally, brief note, I got a couple more games in of Warhammer Underworld's Beastgrave. I wanted to try one of the expansion factions. I noted that in Beastgrave, every new expansion faction is going to come with a pre-made deck right off the top, not just the starter sets anymore. And so I wanted to try one of those pre-made decks, and I did, and it was really interesting. It was a deck built for spec on the new faction, so it was really about showing off what the new factions could do, tailoring to their weirdnesses. And I have a, a, a bit of a soft spot for Games Workshop's treatments of ghouls. It's pretty much the only thing that Games Workshop does that I find uh, aesthetically appealing. And these are ghouls that have sort of delusions of grandeur. They think they're noble knights in some sort of royal court uh, going off in, in some sort of fantastic quest. And I have to say to Games Workshop, how dare you undermine the efforts of these ghouls to better themselves? Games Workshop doesn't get to decide what nobility is. These people are trying to find a way in, in a savage world. And if nobility for them is literally, as was in this particular game, tearing the arm off a goblin and then using that arm to bludgeon to death one of his squigs, well, then that's what nobility is for that person. So I say I want to stand up for ghoul representation. I had a great time with the ghouls. I very much liked seeing how the new unique decks worked in their favor. There's another faction released for Beastgrave, namely Goblin uh, Wolf Riders, and they will also have their own unique deck, and so I might pick them up and see how they work. Yet more positive experiences with Warhammer Underworld's Beastgrave. And those are the games we played last week. 
Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. All right, so I already talked about, we talked about Clay Klinko. He is the designer of Rapid Response Pandemic. He also did, like we said, Fuse, Cosmic Factory, Dead Men Don't Tell No Tales, The Kraken, Proving Grounds, and Slap It. And because of all this work, he won an award, which is a Taggy Award 2019, which is the Toy and Game Innovation Award of the Year. So that's that went to uh, Ken Klenko. Ken Klenko. Ken Klenko. Congratulations to Ken yeah, Klenko. Game Innovator of, of the Year. I've been playing over the past few months a, a miniatures game that I've talked about for a while called Rangers of Shadowdeep. This was independently produced by Joseph McCullough, and it's been picked up by Modifius, the role-playing game slash tabletop miniatures game slash occasional board game publisher. And they're going to be putting out a deluxe edition in February. This is going to be hardbound with all kinds of faux leather, leather nonsense and costing a million dollars. But it's also uh, reorganizing the rules, which is for the good, because the organization of the rulebook was not terribly excellent, and involving some of the additional character design elements from some of the expansion bits. You can pre-order it now on the Medifius website, and if you do, for free, you will get the PDF of the revised rulebook. And I've said before, Rangers of Shadowdeep is a wonderful, wonderful game to try if you are an experienced miniatures gamer and you have access to a whole bunch of terrain and minis or are willing to proxy aggressively. Otherwise, I would encourage you to stay away. But this is a solo slash co-op campaign-based miniatures game with minimal paperwork and uh, a fair amount of pick up and play, aside from, as I say, having to have the supplies available. And I'm very, very glad that this heretofore independent development is now getting some official publisher support although who knows if this is just a one-off but i for i for one believe that uh, mr mccullough desi- deserves as much support as he needs to put out more interesting stuff mark i think reiner Knizzi is on to like put out a game a month this year there's a game called my city it is competitive legacy tile laying game oh no he's making a legacy game he is making a oh, legacy game oh reiner you develop a city on your own little playing board through the ages, over 24 game levels, and you experience new challenges again and again. <laughs> so, Reiner Kensia, competitive city tile laying game. Legacy. I, it's going to be uh, interesting. Well, I am willing to try any Reiner Kensia tile laying game, so we'll see how that works out. So, uh, <laughs> under the aegis of There's Nothing New Under the Sun, and uh, sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, and or life imitates art. There was an April Fool's joke this year where Fantasy Flight claimed to be in production of a dog-based Cthulhu game called Barkham Horror, and now it's going to be a real thing. This is Barkham Horror, colon, the meddling of Meowlithotep. Sigh. And what I want to know is, I'm not mentioning this primarily for the interest of, so this is a, this is an Arkham Horror, the card game expansion. What I want to know is, does this mean that we are one step closer to Zombabees? That's what I want to know. If, if, if we're now at the point where clearly publishers are willing to engage in acts of manifest absurdity in the process of milking licenses to death, how far could we be from Zombabees? That's what I want to know. I better get some residuals on that. Yeah, you got to get your taste on that. It's going to happen sooner. They're going to run out of things to zombify, and it's going to happen. And I'm going to demand that you get your credit in that instance. Speaking of of putting stuff out. There's some sort of game called Gloomhaven. Sorry, what's that again? Gloomhaven. Okay. Isaac, Isaac Childress or something. I, I don't know. Anyway, it was big on the internet interwebs this week. He's putting out a number two Frosthaven or something. Anyway, moving on. Yeah, whatever. 
Red Outpost, Mark. It's a Kickstarter. It's a it's not a co-op worker placement, which I thought at first, but everybody uses the same workers. And everyone shares resources, but it's a competitive worker placement game where you're starting a communist community out on a new planet, and it's a Kickstarter. I am looking forward to trying this out. That reminds me that I need to play more Age of Industry with the Soviet map, because many games have tried to replicate the sort of downfalls and strangenesses of planned economies and of, 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 of central decision, centralized decision-making. And the Age of Industry Soviet map does a very, very good job, I think, of presenting you with these arbitrary production demands and saying, here, go do this thing independently of whatever the market wants and trying to incentivize that through external systems. I'm not going to say it's some sort of robust satire, which I think that Red Post is trying to be a little bit more of, but I should play more Age of Industry. <laughs> that's a, I don't think that's a news item. Is that a full news item? No. No? Okay. All right. This is episode 95, so that means we have to mention our Patreon, which we're going to thank everyone who's who's given us money on our Patreon. We want to make sure that we are very thankful for everyone who takes time to go there and fill out all the paperwork in order to do that. And so thank you for everyone who's given us support. We are very grateful for everyone who gives us anything, whether that's your time, any amount of your attention. But we are also doubly grateful for those who've decided to support us through our Patreon. Thank you very, very much. Moving on. That is the news, and why it doesn't matter. On to our topic of the week, which is filler games and games for the holidays. Now, we are, of course, covering this too late for American Thanksgiving. That is because we do not recognize American Thanksgiving here at So Very Wrong About Games. We get our Thanksgiving done in October because we are Canadians and efficient. So true. But now, what? we don't have a holiday in November, though, Mark. <sighs> so? I mean... I'm just saying... <laughs> saying there's there's a, there's a holiday every, every every month except for November. Well, there are Jewish high holidays in November. That's true. That's true. All right. So, what do we have, Mark? I have I have a bunch of points well, that can... I think filler games and or holiday games should cover. I I agree so as people well. People can try to pick out games from their their collection, existing collection. Could, could and... we start with a brief discussion of the term, though? Yes, for sure. Because and, and then I have a whole bunch of games as uh, suggestions at the end. Sure. I recognize that filler is the term that most people use. I recognize the class of games that it's identifying. I don't think we're going to have too much controversy, unlike our many other uh, topics where we're trying to classify games. I don't think there's going to be a whole lot of controversy about what is a filler and what is not a filler. We might have some minor disagreement, but I don't think it's going to be uh, uh, going to set the internet on fire like some of our other discussions. But I, what, here's one thing I don't like about the term filler. I think it's kind of pejorative. It kind of implies that this is a thing that you do to... You know, just to fill time. Yeah, it's, just... not, it's not a real game. It's exactly. a suboptimal game that this we're is... just going to drag ourselves through while we're waiting for someone to show up. Right. It's a thing that we're doing that's not actually an activity. It's something that we do between activities to string them together. And I don't think that that's fair because a lot of filler games, even just filler games that I've got here on this list, I really like. And I think are fabulous designs and are extremely enjoyable. And sometimes they're the highlight of the evening, regardless of how long they are. And so this notion, I, I just think it's unfortunate that the accepted term, and, and I think the appropriate term, I'm not suggesting any alternative, but that the appropriate term has this kind of pejorative implication. And I, in terms of connotations, I don't like that. Agreed. So yes. what 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 should a filler game have, Walker? Well, filler or I have I think most of my stuff is holidays, but all very clear, simple victory conditions, especially when they're dead simple and very thematic. 
like survive, get your guys off the island, or games like that. You know, where you think survive is a filler? Oh my goodness! No, no, it's a ho- that's a holiday game. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Whew. Definitely not a filler. I was I was afraid, having just confidently predicted that we were going to be on the same page for the most no, part no, about no. what a filler is. If you're gonna start, gonna start telling me that survive is a filler, I was gonna have to scrap all this and start from scratch. No, no, I'm saying when you get together with your family members, they have to be they have to recognize what the victory conditions are. Yes. If they can be very thematic, like you know, get off an island, you know, climb a mountain, win a race, something that you know is easily remembered and easily sought after. That's definitely a plus for for a filler and or holiday game. That is absolutely true. I think that sort of relatedly to that, I have a very strong notion for the context of holiday games where you, where you might be playing with non-gamers about what accessibility constitutes. Because I think that as gamers, we have different con- different concepts of this. I've been listening to other people talk about games they wanted to try during the holidays. And I'm not going to mention them by name because I don't want to shame them because they were, uh, what's the what's a polite term for grotesquely wrong? Uh, selfish and rude. <laughs> Okay, so politely, I don't want to call out these people for having been selfish and rude because there are certain things that we think are simple and and uh, filler appropriate games that are absolute that might absolutely be good good fillers, but the victory condition, whether it's the victory conditions or a turn structure or something, is sufficiently cumbersome that people who are not fluent in game speak or do not have extensive experience with games are going to find incredibly dense and inaccessible, even though we think they're very, very simple games. I'm going to mention a couple of these later, but I, I that there are specific games that people mention that they think are simple and easy, and they are, but they're still not good for non-gamers. I think a good filler should also be flexible in terms of player number. Because ideal, again, this is an ideal. Not all good fillers will have this. I think that a good filler is portable. Because especially if you want to be able to, whether it's bringing it to some, uh, bring it while traveling or bring it to a game night when you're not sure if it's going to be the main event, it's nice to be able to just be able to toss it into a bag. And for me, and this is a very personal preference, I prefer it when fillers are social in nature, where there's a lot of talking involved, where there's a lot of engagement. Uh, not even necessarily that it's not head down, but specifically in the sense that I think that ideally fillers ought to be the kind of thing where you get to talk to people around you. Uh, whether that is strictly in uh, internalized in the game comp- uh, mechanics themselves, or just broadly uh, a game that facilitates lots of table talk, I think it's very, very helpful, especially for keeping things light. I think it should be, have a very quick setup and tear down time as well for, you know, since it's, you know, a game you want to get, you know, in... You want to be able to put it away quickly and get it going quickly. Absolutely. More on that later. Oh, I'll just I'll just cover now. And in a holiday setting, if a game does take a little bit of uh, setup, you want to get it set up ahead of time, right? If you're trying to introduce new people to the hobby or to this particular game, you don't want them sitting there in front of you while you know putting you know a stack of six over here and a stack of five there and sorting the decks and everything. You just you know just go off. If they've agreed more on this later. If they've agreed to play a game, just say okay, well I'll, you know you do this and this. I'm gonna go set it all up and then have it ready to go. That's an excellent point. It dovetails with what I said before about what we consider accessible and what non-gamers might consider accessible. Well, we consider acceptable setup. You know, if a game sets up in four to five minutes, say, we might think that that's acceptable, even in the context of a filler. But to a non-gamer watching someone set up a game for a full four minutes, that might give, that might send them running and screaming to the hills. That's a very good point. All right. Ramping up competitiveness. Key part of holiday gaming and or family gaming is, you know, developing rivalries and or hatred and or or exploiting existing ones exactly right but you don't want to you don't want to hit it off right off the beginning right you don't want to you know ramp this you know cutthroat game right off of 
the starting block because some people will react negatively to that and will get a sour taste in their mouth. So you want to ramp up the competitors, like you maybe start with a co-op game and like slowly ramp into things that are more cutthroat and or aggressive. That's an right? excellent point. Because you don't want to, you want to create the rivalries, you don't want any hurt feelings, you want to slowly get them in the mood, and then you want to hit them where it hurts. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's an aspect I hadn't considered. That's a very, very good point. Also, I think whenever possible, and this is true of fillers for gamers or fillers for non-gamers, it'd best be colorful and pretty if at all possible. Whether that's represented in the theme or not, I actually find that for, for especially, this is one of those things that gamers tend to appreciate in a very real way that non-gamers don't. Gamers, experienced gamers, are might be the kind of thing where it's like, well, the theme is just pasted on. This isn't really a game about much of anything. But a non-gamer is like, ooh, pretty lizards on the cards when they're playing something like Colorado, for example, just as, just as an example. Whereas another gamer might be like, well, this doesn't have anything to do with anything. It's like, oh, I like lizards. This is a fun game. You know, that kind yeah, of thing. I have exact the very next point. Colorful and fun art, arboretum, stuff like that. Things that just look gorgeous. Sushi go party, you know, very cute, interesting art. People are going to like just gravitate to that and just... Even when there's some downtime or they're losing interest, this art is cute or nice or interesting. will keep them engaged in the game. Absolutely. So let me start with uh, some of these uh, fillers that I think... Some of these I think are really good, but I don't think they're appropriate for noobs. So just carving out this example. So Deception, Murder in Hong Kong, I think is a fabulous game. And I think it's... If played briskly, I think it's a, it's a good length for a filler. But for non-gamers, and a lot of people, I've seen a lot of people try to introduce this to non-gamers, I don't think it's a particularly good idea, because it has things like hidden information, it has a structure that has to be followed, it's very structure-heavy, now the murderer needs to do this, now everyone needs to understand that your job is to do this thing, and the murderer's job is to do this other thing, and the murderer is pointing these cards, and I'm going to blah, 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 blah. So I don't, I've seen it fail miserably with people, even who are gamers, because they're not quite at the level of internalizing that kind of thing. We love Deception Murder in Hong Kong, and I think it's a great filler. I think it's one of those great social, accessible, player-flexible, somewhat portable games, but I would not, under any circumstances, pack it for, say, holiday gaming with family members. Well, my idea for that is, I've only tried it once, is just to have it all face up and then just go through a mock game right away. Just say, boom, boom, boom. I'm the Franklin scientist. You can see that. See, they're the murderer. They're going to point to two of their cards, and you have all these other. I'm going to give you clues. See here, I'm going to say, oh, he's he's picked that and that. So I'm going to go here, here, and here, and you guys are going to talk, and then you go through. And see, and now I'm going to mix these up, and I'm, it's going to be hidden, and we're, and then try to go again. Maybe you know it might work that way. Yeah, I think some audiences would absolutely be receptive to that, but I think that for a lot of other audiences, that would then be you know, adding another five to 10 minutes on the explanation slash setup, which again can be very intimidating and or overwhelm people. Uh, a, a game that actually I think I've, I've actually heard this game recommended for, for holiday gaming and I can't understand why they'd want to do this is, is Letter Jam. Letter Jam is a very simple game, but the structure, the sort of setup, the overall conceit, the way everything works is sufficiently convoluted and rests on hidden information that I've seen lots of gamers not be able to understand how Letter Jam works until well into the middle of the game. And so that, again, is an example of the kind of filler that I, I'm not a huge fan of Letter Jam, but even if you were, even if I were, rather, I wouldn't bring it to uh, uh, to family-style gaming. The same is true of Decrypto. Again, very process-heavy, very much a sort of, well, you have to add this clue, and this clue leads to this inference, and you're trying to make this guess based on this other thing. Even extremely simpler filler games that I think are brilliant, uh, Attribute. Attribute is one of my favorite fillers of all time. It's by Marcel André Castezola-Merkel. It's about from back before we've got a lot of these other uh, word-based 
a large number of filler games, but the scoring and attribute, although I think is brilliant, is not really accessible to people who aren't gamers and can't quite understand the counterfactuals. Like, well, if you got this kind of card at the top of the round, you want to do this other thing to score this kind of point, etc., etc. So these are the kinds of simple games that are relatively simple and great fillers for gamers, but I would not introduce to non-gamers, certainly not as a first blush. So I have Letter Jam in here. See if you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. Because I haven't played it yet, so I shouldn't know. But anyway, my my thing for Letter Jam here You want me to confirm your idle speculation? Exactly. Spins on classics, right? Because... A lot of people are just used to like classic Monopoly, uh, Clue, Scrabble, Trivia Pursuit. But people have done spins on those games that will make it interesting to gamers, right? So there's Mario Kart Monopoly, which I hear is a fantastic version of Monopoly where you have like miniature cars and they all have their special abilities and they go out onto the board and that should be fun. And then there's Incognito, which is a far better version of Clue. And then I have Letter Jam instead of Scrabble. Yeah, I can't. I I just don't. I've seen Letter Jam so go, go so wrong, even amongst gamers, just in terms of not getting how the fundamental flow of the game works. And people need to understand the fundamental flow of the game. With respect to word games, there are so many. That's, yeah, that's what I was gonna say. After after you it, you, you you dismiss Letter Jam, I was gonna say there are so many other word. Scrabble type games that are a, a spinoff of Scrabble that you know I, apparently that would be exactly I, I would definitely say pick just one instead. Now it's not it's not quite like Scrabble in the sense that it's not about spelling things correctly, blah blah blah, but it is still about a you know it involves words saliently enough that I don't think a whole bunch of people at the table are going to split hairs and say, well, you know, this isn't really a word game in the same way. It's like, well, you like playing with words. Just one is a way to play with words, as is code names. Those are two brilliant, brilliant first class filler games that are very social, very accessible, and you don't even need to understand the overall flow of the game to be able to pick it up and have fun. Similarly, in the context of like Clue, this is not a filler game. It's 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 it, it's key. One of its key failings is it's long. But if you want to introduce family members and non gamers into a sort of like clue but more gamerly i'd say mysterium 10 times out of 10 yeah, because I mysterium later on for sure because mysterium although again not a filler you don't have to understand the overall thrust of the game you don't have to understand the structure of the game all you need to do as a player if you're not the ghost and don't make a new player the ghost is simply say i'm going to give you these cards which of these things do you think I'm trying to point you to? And that's it. That's all they need to understand. Exactly. And if you're interested in getting a little bit more into the hobby, you can start understanding the overall structure of how the game works. But at a base level, it's entirely accessible and it's colorful and you'll be able to understand its parallelism to, you know, every murder procedural ever. So if someone were thinking of considering something like Deception, Murder in Hong Kong, I'd say, nah, probably Mysterium is a, is, is a lot simpler. You don't have to worry about all this other stuff. All right. Just to finish my last thought, the Trivia Pursuit. Spin would be wits and wagers. If your you know, family loves trivia games and you can't stand the pain of trivia pursuit anymore, then wits and wagers is a far better game. And wits and wagers is a fine filler because out of – I hate trivia games as well. And I'm not a huge fan of wits and wagers, but there's at least one or two questions in every game of wits and wagers that I think are really interesting. And in a 45-minute game, that's probably enough. All right. Another thing for, fam- uh, for holiday or family games – are card games that they recognize, right? So there's plenty of games that use a standard deck of cards. So you can either proxy a game that you enjoy with regular cards, so it's something that they recognize, or they're... Apparently, Euchre is a is an Ontario thing. I didn't realize. I thought everyone played Euchre. But anyway, really? Yeah. 
I I heard about euchre in New England. Oh, is there? Oh, right. well, I don't know. Anyway, there's tons of trick taking games. Tons well, there's of tons of regional trick taking variation. Yeah. I I don't know if euchre is one of them, but every every region has its own trick taking. That's right. Game. There's rook and all sorts of different trick taking games. So a lot of people recognize trick trick taking games. So you can you know use that to try to get them into these other types of games. I once suckered. I I wouldn't recommend this necessarily as a as a strategy all the time. But I want suckered somebody into playing Hanabi by just proxying it with a normal deck of cards because something about the custom components was intimidating them, but they nonetheless had a good head for gaming. And so I'm like, okay, well, here's a here's a game with a traditional deck of cards. And we played Hanabi with, with an actual deck of cards. It worked out very well. All right. So I, I was talking to someone about this holiday games. A lot of people remember the old Nightmare VHS games. You know, no, 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 I'm not saying that you would play those, but I mean, th- there are great memories of those games. Really? And, yeah. And nowadays there's all these, you know, interactive app games, right? Where, where it keeps people engaged. It's something that they recognize. It's something that is interesting and might keep them engaged. So that's another idea. Sure. So the ones, the, the, the filler games that I think would definitely work really, really well, both for gamers and for non-gamers, although you made a very good point about ramping up to the level of competitiveness and viciousness, but I would definitely be willing to pull out Skull or Cockroach Poker with almost anybody. Because Cockroach Poker gets a slight bit tricky for some people about, okay, well, what happens under these various conditions? But mostly it's about, look, people are going to be lying to you. You want to figure out if people are lying to you. And past that, it, the rest is just detail. And I've had a great deal of luck introducing both Skull and Cockroach Poker to lots of different people of different contexts. But again, you have to be willing to get a little bit mean. They're, they're fundamentally rather mean games, and so you have to be okay with that. The other category, which is much less mean and which gets far less credit than it deserves and is always something that we have been championing here on So Very Wrong About Games, is dexterity games. Dexterity games make wonderful fillers and wonderful games with people who aren't... The only kinds of people that aren't willing to get... You know, the only kind of non-gamer that's not willing to get down with dexterity games are the ones who think they're too good to play with toys. But to those people, I say disown them, send them out into the cold, lock the door, and pretend you never met them. So... You know, Lupin Louie is my personal favorite. A lot of people don't like it, but they're wrong. Uh, Junk Art, Rhino Hero Super Battle. These are 45-minute, really, really solid, accessible dexterity games that are fun toys to play with, although not always very portable. All right, I have just two more points to make, and then I can get into some of my games. Be sure you know the rules. Don't be pulling out a game oh, yeah. 100% on top of the rules. You don't want to be, like, grabbing the rule book every five seconds. You know, that's going to lose your crowd immediately. And Mark already sort of alluded to this, but I'm just going to reinforce it. Know your crowd. Never force it. All right? Bring the games with you with the understanding that they will not be played. Do not force it. You'll just get into a bad time. Just say, hey, I brought some board games. And then that's it. Yep. Then someone will come to you and say, hey, didn't you bring a board game? Let's try that. Or not. Or not. Or they won't. And then they'll stay in your bag. You'll have... Great conversations and great other things, great food. Eh, maybe. But a forced game is a terrible game. All Absolutely. Right. Fast Forward Fortress by Freeman Fress and Stronghold. Fantastic quick card game. Fantastic. Keeps people engaged. It even introduces them to legacy elements because it's one of these things that we talked about er- earlier where it slowly introduces more rules. Other games like that would be perfect. I didn't. I meant to put some in this category as well, but I forgot. Games that slowly introduce rules as they go along. You're right. I, comple- I completely forgot to consider that as a filler game. It manifestly is, but I don't conceive of it as one because the only way I could imagine playing that is 
all through the deck in one sitting for the full two hours because of how compelling it is. But you're right. Every individual session is like five minutes. So, I already talked about Survive Escape from Atlantis. Great theme. Quick setup. And it's one of those games where you have three actions. You're moving guys around. That's all they need to know. Things, Other things will happen, but the, the rule set's very basic and pandemic falls into that same sort of category you have four actions and the actions are very simple Ooh, i don't know man pandemic seems like a bit of a stretch but as long as the i think one person can run all the all the gist of it they people will quickly see what's happening they'll say okay you know they have to they can just see you know they don't understand they don't need to understand why certain things are happening they can just see okay there's a problem there i'm going to go deal with that i have these four actions to do that but the but the amount here's the thing the amount of process the amount of overhead going on the moment there's like two or three steps in a row where someone doesn't understand what's going on they're going to tune right out so if you pull an epidemic or you can alpha game the hell out of that mark (laughs) but then what's the point (laughs) like well until they catch on and until they see what's going on then you can slowly back they're not going there's there's a certain class of person that is not going to catch on so let me let me be very specific about this you pull a card it results in an epidemic you then start going through three or four steps. Maybe during the resolution of that epidemic, you have an outbreak. And that, in turn, results in other procedures. A lot of people, I grant you, are perfectly willing to be like, all right, just put up the cubes and then we'll talk about what we do about it afterwards. That's fine. But there's going to be some people who see all this resolution, this custom card leading to this other card poll, and now manipulating the cards and something, and that is just going to convince them that they are incapable of understanding anything. And these people will then not even be able to understand how to walk from Paris to whatever S, and I don't know if the two are connected on the standard pandemic Mac. So I don't, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and for a certain person who you're confident is just about ready to enter into the world of hobbyist gaming, sure, but I would much rather pull out something simpler for a mixed audience. Next, I have Carcassonne. We talked about fantastic art and something that's very interesting. You're creating this whole map. And the first time I I taught it, I just left out farms. And it was funny as I was like looking up a rule while I was teaching. And it said, for your first game, you might want to leave out farms. Like, <laughs> that's a great idea. It is. So, yeah. So, just leave out farms because the rest of the scoring is fairly, you know, standard and obvious and makes sense. Whereas farms are not overly complicated, but for someone new is is not only complicated but punishing absolutely code names we talked about cockroach poker you talked about coyote another fantastic game especially with children you know because it teaches math skills and 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 hidden numbers and... <laughs> now you're reaching what do you mean you're... <laughs> 100% coyote teaches math skills it it, it involves basic arithmetic yeah. i don't think that involves basic arithmetic Mark, to teaches math skills i think it's a bit of a leap i don't think you understand what they don't teach anymore in school i think they teach basic arithmetic uh, at school you'd be surprised <laughs> the naughty seven the evil seven the awful seven whatever the english translation you would like to use fantastic card game Keeps people enthralled. Skull, you talked about. Quacks of Quiglinburg because they have no, you know, choices to make. They just draw stuff out of the bag and don't <laughs> need to actually do anything. But it's far too long. I think I think Quacks of Quiglinburg is not a good filler, and it's not a good, like if it were a filler, if it were thirty or forty five minutes reliably, I could imagine enjoying Quacks of Quiglinburg. But I think it's too long, and I I I think it might even just be too involved. For oh, I just put it in here so I could bash it. Mark. Yeah, I know you did. I'm just trying to. I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> salvage our editorial credibility a little bit. <laughs> Mysterium talked about Formula D. Mark, tell me about Formula D. Maybe too long, 
but it's it's a racing it's a theme people can get behind it's not overly complicated it's it's very competitive it you know it's you know trying to get ahead of people yeah people look it's it's definitely the kind of thing where everything everything in terms of the theme and the components really are served to reinforce plausible and intuitive steps you're shifting up a gear so now you roll this bigger die and it's physically bigger and it's got more faces and so it results in faster movement and all those other things uh but again i i wouldn't if you know that you're going to have a couple of hours for an audience, absolutely. So this is this I think is more squarely in the terms of possible, you know, major holiday of gaming event kind of deal. But it's so big and heavy to begin with that it's not something that I'd want to pack to to bring on spec. One hundred percent. Sushi Go Party. I've already talked about fantastic art, uh, very interesting uh, basic scoring mechanisms yeah i'd recommend sushi go party over something like fairy tale even though we both adore fairy tale fairy tale resolves a lot more around calculated gambles about what's going to come out of the deck and uh scoring combinatorics which again super simple for gamers but non-gamers something like sushi go is is definitely more accessible and then if you're down sometimes there's only two two people you and your brother you and a sibling santorini fantastic game not only that, it will bring people in. They see this thing, you know, taking shape. It's one of these same sort of thing. Very simple movement. You know, you move a guy, build a piece, and then people will very quickly catch on to the strategies. Absolutely. And then my last one is just something that if people are 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 working with these games, uh, this is just the one step up game I have. Ethnos, I think, is is just borderline off of these very basic, you know. Uh, card powers it's you know player pass player pass player pass and that's all you need to know and you're you know area majority very simple and i think that's a great gateway into more complicated stuff yeah i think i think ethnos is a good gateway game and i think it might be okay in some family mixed context that's right know your crowd know your crowd know your audience but it's definitely uh you know it's easier to lug around and it's, it's pretty easy to explain so there's there's that so I've got here also a list of really good hobbyist fillers. These are the kind of things that definitely have the portability and the length of fillers, but definitely not under the aegis of family accessible. Uh, so I've been enjoying Imperius a lot. I've been playing a lot of The Menace Among Us. I think The Menace Among Us is, is turning out to be a pretty good uh, filler, as is Bloodbound. I like the kind of social deduction games that are quick enough and, and simple enough that you can get done in about 45 minutes to an hour. Same thing with Deception, but again, Deception is not really good for a mixed crowd. Uh, the Resistance is still my favorite, but the Resistance is usually, especially if you're playing it properly and you're really digesting it as a full meal, I don't think it's a filler anymore at that point. Uh, the Some of the Cube Rail games, I think, are sufficiently short that they make excellent fillers. Irish Gage or Chicago, uh, Chicago Express. Even though they involve pretty sophisticated economic calculation, you can still play it properly and get it done in about 45 minutes. Door of the Lesser Houses falls into the same category. A little bit of a rules explanation, but, you know, once you get past that, oh, Walker, uh, Walker, you're just wrong. No, but the actual gameplay of Door of the Lesser oh, yeah. Houses. Oh, yeah, gameplay, if everyone knows the rules, definitely get it done quickly. Okay, but, yeah, yeah, you're right. You gotta, you gotta it's, such a, it's such a unique game mechanism, you know what I mean? It's so different that's than true. anything else you're that's right. out there. I retract it. I retract Door the Lesser Houses as a good filler. It is a good short game. It is not a good filler. You're absolutely right. And then uh, there are, you you know, you mentioned two-player only fillers. For, for hobbyists, I think most of the really excellent two-player card battling games are really, really short and can easily be knocked out in a, a quick amount of times. Sakar Arms is super short, as is Blue Moon. Uh, Grimslingers, Airland and Sea, Battle Line, all these games are, can be 
easily fit into 20, 30 minutes while you're waiting for the next game to set up. I don't really like playing two-player games at, at game night situations. It makes me feel antisocial and weird. Uh, but many people do like to knock out these quick things uh, in between other games. So, you know, more power to that. Finally, there's there's one category that I, I always find uh, very appealing, and that is what I kind of internalize as the super filler. The game that is portable and quick like a filler, but nonetheless is a full-fledged, full-on, no-corners-cut strategy gaming experience. The two paragons of this particular category to me are Innovation and Pax Renaissance. Pax Renaissance, it, when, once you know how to play, is a 45-minute game, but it feels like an epic, more substantial experience. But again, there's the if everyone knows how to play. And uh, Innovation as well is one of the best tableau builders, but is faster even than something like 51st State Master Set, which already is pretty quick. Uh, and in the same category, I would put Race for the Galaxy, which is probably one of my favorite card games of all time, definitely my favorite tableau builder, and can be played very, very, very quickly uh, by everyone involved. Again, once I know the rules. So I, I th when you're talking about that, I was thinking about Quadropolis, and then I, you know, got my mind went into Roll and Rights. We are not fan of Roll and Rights. Nope. But we really shouldn't dismiss the accessibility of Roll and Rights. That is fair. Because it is something that, that people will easily catch on to and, and can digest quite easily. That is true. You're right. So let us just reiterate the overall principle that we have with respect to introducing gaming to new people, and that is know your audience, read the room, don't push it. We've been saying that. That's exactly what we said actually last year when we had our sort of holiday insert. And so in the context of but of filler games, I think that applies even when you're trying to introduce new fillers to actual gamers, because ideally these are the kind of things that should be as frictionless as possible, and you don't really want to have to engage in the heavy lift. Just because it's 45 minutes long, as Walker himself pointed out, doesn't necessarily make it a good filler. Agreed. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker by his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter, at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.